0: So you may have gathered from the handout that I want to talk about the ethical precepts (laughs) this morning. And I want to do this for a few reasons. Uh, One of them is is that uh, Sylvia is going to be starting next week sort of going back to the foundations of practice. And in many ways, taking some time before that to look at the ethical precepts is a very is a very good foundation. I think Sylvia's intentions over the next weeks are really to go to the core of what this practice is and go back to some of the basics, some of the foundations, and working with the precepts uh, today, and then what I'll, what I'll do is I'll invite you, if you so choose, to give special focus to the ethical precepts in the next week as your take-home practice or at-home practice. Um, this will give, um, I think, a good basis for sort of hand the baton to Sylvia in the next weeks. So that that was one of my intentions. And also, I just love the precepts in many ways, and I wanted to talk about them. Uh, So what I want to do is talk first a little bit generally about the ethical precepts and then talk about the five, what we call the five lay precepts. These are the precepts that are on the sheet of paper, and talk about each of them somewhat briefly. And then thirdly, explore a little more fully what it means to practice the precepts in our daily lives and to give some very brief uh, possible instructions for your next week. That's what I want to do. So in some ways we we may think of the ethical precepts and think well i 'm an ethical person. you know what do I have to learn about the ethical precepts i don 't go around hurting people deliberately, and I try to be uh, clear with my speech so i 'm you know what do I really need to explore? Why do I need to explore the ethical precepts and or you may not feel that? You may feel like oh there's something there 's something to learn here, but in many ways. I think I want to suggest or inspire or re-inspire you to consider working with the precepts as actually a very deep practice. It's a practice that works not just on the most gross level of following certain rules or guidelines, but that it actually goes deep into our sense of who we are and really our moment-to-moment experience is very much, can be very much informed by the precepts in traditional Buddhist training, the dimension of ethics, or uh, sila or shila, S-I-L-A, in the uh, Pali and Sanskrit, is one of the three main areas of training, traditionally, along with uh, what we usually translate as meditation and wisdom. We might, we might talk about this as the training for uh, ethical action, first of all, secondly, the meditation training, and thirdly, the wisdom training that helps us have the insight and understanding of our minds and the way, and the way things work and the nature of suffering and freedom. And sometimes, again, um, ethics or sila is seen as the beginning, and once you kind of get that down, then you go on to the really advanced subjects of meditation and wisdom. But I think, again, in many ways although it's very important to have an ethical foundation for practice. In, in many ways, we can see, as we go deeper in meditation and wisdom, we also can have a deeper sense of, of ethics, of, of these core principles. Historically, the, the, when the Buddha was teaching, there were rules established for the monks and nuns. And the precepts evolved out of those rules. You know, for the monks and nuns, there are some two hundred plus um, precepts. You know, dictating quite a, a number of um, aspects of life. And but in at Spirit Rock and generally, we go by what are called the five lay precepts. And all the precepts are elaborated in the uh, Vinaya. And I, I love the the literal meaning of Vinaya. This is the the part of the canon or the part of the uh, text which is particularly concerned with ethics, that literal translation of Anaya is that which leads away from remorse. That which leads away from remorse is sort of the the body of of the teachings. And a way that I love to think about the precepts that's very helpful for me and maybe for many of you is to think about the precepts as providing a kind of container for practice that is a container of safety, that lets us have some safety for ourselves and that promises a kind of safety for others if we're practicing the the ethical precepts. It gives a kind of, it it really is about a kind of integrity and harmlessness to others and to ourselves that we cultivate more and more. You know, you know i've said i've mentioned a few times this wonderful phrase which uh, Guy Armstrong uh, told me about about six months ago, this phrase "One who loves oneself will not harm another. one who loves oneself will not harm another, and I think that is such a for me such a powerful statement. I mean we could take it in a lot of directions. We could say that what we 're working on when we practice is the ability to love ourselves and others. And that in many ways we need to start with ourselves. We need to start with being with our own minds and hearts and develop the ability to see through the ways that it's hard to love ourselves, the ways that we judge ourselves or are harsh towards ourselves. And we can see in many ways that that's deeply connected with us being harsh towards others. And so and we can also, uh, I think, appreciate the way that when there's that quality of love present, it's very, it's very difficult to harm others. So we could take that statement also as partly a statement of the causes of uh, suffering in the world, the causes of harming in the world, that in many ways, um, what causes violence? The great Buddhist teacher Shanti Davis said, um, the world is consumed by insanity by those who don't understand themselves well. You know, and part of that is an inability to really love oneself. You know, and you know I sometimes like to think of this program that I saw, which influenced me quite a few years ago, by Bill Moyers, which was on uh, teenage uh, murderers. And they interviewed the, mur- the uh, teenagers who had killed others and to a person, they almost all said, I was in so much pain, I wanted someone else to feel the pain. No ability, really, to love oneself. There's so much pain that they wanted, in a way, you might say, to pass on the pain. And you could say that that's what people who harm others do. They, in some ways, they want to pass on the pain. Governments also do that. They pass on the pain. You know, when In some ways, the country can't really deal with a certain pain that's there. And so when we when we take the precepts we go in the other direction. All of the precepts in a way are about non-harming. If you look at these precepts you could see that they're all about not harming others. Of of taking as training guidelines that we will as much as we can refrain from harming others. So if you look at the five precepts that will that we'll look at in more uh, depth in a moment, they're all about they all could be seen as non-harming that the first one uh, which is usually expressed in terms of refraining from killing, could be broadly be talked about in terms of non-harming. And the the second one, the precept not to steal or not to take that which is not given, could also be seen in terms of not harming others. Sometimes we think of um, um, property almost like a, as an extension of ourselves. And so we could also see that as being linked to non-harming. And then the precepts about sexuality and speech and intoxicants all are in a way about being very careful with energies that um, the use of which we can very easily hurt others with our sexuality or our speech or through the use of intoxicants. So I think that uh, the precepts are most basically, if you have to think about them, they're really about setting ourselves up so we don't harm Ourselves or others. In a way, it's like we become like I was thinking of the, um, the signs in Berkeley where I live. You are now entering a nuclear-free zone, and I think that it's almost like if we're following the precepts, we could wear a T-shirt that says, you know, I don't know, um, peace practitioner in training you are entering a, sa- a relatively safe zone. <laughs> <You know? laughs> you know? And it's like that. that we, that's where the precepts take us. We aspire towards being people that, even though people, of course, project and will do all sorts of things, if they could, as it were, be with us in a, in a way that knew us, they could feel safe. It's really establishing this zone of safety around us. That's what the precepts do, both to ourselves and to others. And that that kind of safety is in a way the precondition of practice because we need to be safe in order to explore. It's as it were, what we do in practice is we have to have the kind of safety so we move almost from what we might call survival mode to exploration mode. That's what we do in our practice. We, We move from being concerned, oh my gosh, if this happens, you know, psychically, we think, or in an in inner way, we think, I won't survive this. I won't survive that person's comment or this situation. And we kind of get on alert where we you know, I think you all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> we get on alert, you know, either interpersonally or because of some, something that may happen. And in that sort of situation, it's hard to actually explore because we're mostly concerned with survival. That's why safety is so important when we create safety, we can more easily explore what's there. And we can, we can have that safety to go really deeply and to explore the deeper roots of our suffering, of our, of our confusion, as well as of our happiness. Um, Thomas Merton ha, ha, um, said in a, in a beautiful uh, text that's co- that comes from a, a book that was just published called The Inner Experience, he wrote it In 1960, and for some reason, the Vatican censors wouldn't let it be published until, like, 1998 or something. I'm not quite sure why he died in 1968. Anyway, it's a beautiful text, and he says this. The inner self is precisely that self, and this is the inner self which which needs the safety to come out. He compares the inner self to a wild animal, a shy wild animal. The inner self is precisely that self which cannot be tricked or manipulated by anyone. That self is like a very shy, wild animal that never appears at all whenever an alien presence is at hand and comes out only when all is perfectly peaceful, in silence, when the animal is untroubled and alone. He or she cannot be lured by anyone or anything because he or she responds to no lure except of divine freedom. And that's, I think, we try to set up the conditions, especially with the precepts, so that shy, wild animal in all of us can, can come out more and can, can learn and can shed some of, the, uh, some of the survival mechanisms, can shed some of those, can see which of those are really not necessary anymore. Maybe a last... Thing to say generally about the precepts is that they're very important to have in a community. The ethical precepts are very important to have as sort of publicly acknowledged that this is the way we operate. You know, we, I think many of us know that over the last years in this country there have been a lot of ethical abuses by spiritual authorities, people in power concerning money, power, sexuality especially. And many of those have occurred where the ethical precepts haven't always been so clear. One of the things I think is strong in this community is that those precepts are, are clearer. And it's I think it's also very important just to have the precepts be right at the center to really, not not so much to have a sort of Puritan or Victorian super-ego functioning to watch out for everything, <laughs> not, not, not in that sense, but more to just have, it be, have there be a simplicity. You know, and one can look historically or look at you know, the current crises with Catholic priests, or you know, it's, it's, there's a history in Buddhism that's not always very pretty, and there's been a lot of scholarship recently, for example, about how in 20th century Japan, uh, before and during World War II, there was a close collaboration between the Zen establishment and Japanese militarism you know and there's there's there are pretty stunning books, one of them is called Zen at war which which um, which show that and it's um, and one way to look at why that could happen is that uh, the, the the ethics which are very very clear in the teachings of the Buddha just were not so prominent you know and I think it's we, it's um, it's very possible to to have uh, sort of be, people try to trick us out of the simplicity of the ethics. You know, in the case of Japan, it was the force of nationalism. And they could say, and and, you know, and, and, and also maybe some confusion about what we might call the, the absolute level and the relative level. You know, at the absolute level, it's said often, especially in Zen, there's no birth and death. And that sometimes became used, some confusion between that level and the relative level where there's Where there's uh, a lot, most of what we do is choosing the courses of action which we take to be uh, good, which we take to be ethical, and and so there's um, somehow what happened was that some of the statements which we can find in spiritual traditions uh, about you know birth and death not being the final story were manipulated, and there was a loss of the the uh, clarity about ethics. And so that's, I think, that's another, it's something quite important. I think it's less of a danger maybe here. And we're very aware of some of those histories and some of the uh, scandals of the last 30 years in the United States. But I think that's another important reason why, why attention to the precepts is very crucial. The, now, now moving on to the five basic precepts, the five lay precepts, the, the first precept is the precept that we have here stated, for the sake of training, I undertake the precept to abstain from the taking of life. And this generally in Buddhist tradition is taken to be the most important precept, the first sort of the, the most significant precept. Uh, in one of the Buddhist texts it says that non-harming is the distinguishing mark of the Dharma, to be a being that operates more out of kindness out of love, out of compassion, because the act of harming is taken to be that which follows upon hatred. And there may also be greed in there, and, and certainly a lot of delusion. So when we take these precepts, part of what we're doing is we are trying to limit the effect of the what are called the three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. And hatred is particularly a source of the intention to harm the precept itself refers to refraining from the deliberate or intentional killing of any living being. That's, that's the, the actual meaning of the precept. Let me read you something from, from some of the suttas. Laying aside violence in respect of all beings, both those which are still and those which move, one should not kill a living creature, nor cause to kill nor approve of others' killing. Elsewhere it says, Abandoning the onslaught on breathing beings, one abstains from this, without stick or sword, scrupulous, compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. That, that would express that the very developed sense of the precept may be in, in, the, in the mind and heart of the Buddha, now what we do is we try to move in that direction, and the, the, the practice of the precept is one that it's not like we, we say we find ourselves wanting, and we just say, "Oops, I guess I'm not you know, fit for the spiritual life." You know, it's more that this is, as, as we say, it's a training precept, and we continually find, and a lot of what it is, it sets up a guideline so that when things come up in our life, particularly when we enter a kind of a gray area where, oh, does the precept hold here? Does it not? You know, should I be a vegetarian? You know, should I, um, what, about, what about those nasty flies in my house? You know, what should I do with that? Well, what it does is it sets up a kind of a light bulb which goes on and it says, this is a place for, for practice. I can begin to look at my motivation I can begin to see what's there. So think of the precepts as training precepts, not as super-ego-instructed guidelines from above that mean we're going to have bad karma if we disobey them. They're training, they're training precepts, and they're, they're ones that in many ways we keep on not quite making. You know, Perhaps we work well with the precepts in, a, in, in the grossest of ways, but as Thich Nhat Hanh once said, because of the fact of there being microorganisms and even flies, we're always in some ways killing small beings. Maybe even when we boil water, we're we are killing small beings. So it's really a question of being aware of that and trying to minimize the harm we do and be as aware as possible and work with, and work with uh, one's intentions. You may have heard in the, one of the quotations that I gave from the Buddha, that the Buddha said not to approve of others' killing. And there is a social dimension in the precepts, as well as referring to personal experience. And Thich Nhat Hanh, when he expresses the precepts in his version, um, and it's, in, it's in the, particularly in the, the book called Interbeing, and it's also in the book that some of you have read called Being Peace, uh, Tiknad Han speaks about the first precept in this way, or he expresses it in this way. Do not kill. Do not let others kill. Find whatever means possible to protect life and to prevent war. And so that, when we start to see it in that context, it starts to make the precept starts to become actually a little more complex, doesn't it? You know, what does it mean to follow the precepts? When I'm a citizen, of a country which has capital punishment. Or, of course, which, which kills others in, in wars. Now, there are a lot of, there are a lot of um, complexities about those issues, but what I think is invited is for us to inquire into them and to see those, that social dimension as part of our ethical practice. That's challenging, isn't it? That's quite challenging you know but it's i think it's. i think one can say that that dimension of the precepts is there yeah question does, does anybody speak about ecocide in connection with that precept the question is I'll, I'll give a brief answer here does anyone and maybe we can do more rows in the in the discussion does anyone talk about ecocide or the killing of all living beings in relation to the precept well a lot of a lot of Buddhists who are trying to bring a contemporary application to environmental issues would do that. They would, they would make the connection. They would say that the precept gives us a basis for an environmental ethics, we might say. They, want to, they would want to go in that direction. Let's, let's return to that a little, little bit more. So I think we can see from looking at the, the first precept that there are different way, There are really a few different ways that we work with the precept, with any given precept. First of all, we can use the precept as a kind of a, uh, um, a principle and to make sure that we're not in some way violating it in a gross way. Then we start to look into the gray areas and we start to look into our intentions. What's our motivation when we get in a gray area? What's happening? And we also can s- see that there's also a social dimension. So the full practice of the precepts would involve uh, working both with the precept as an external reminder and then doing more inner work when we get into gray areas, but also not forgetting that it also extends into our interrelationships with others on, on a wide scale. The second precept is uh, reads like this. For the sake of training, I undertake the precept not to take that which is not given. <laughs> Traditionally, this meant that for monks and nuns, that they should accept the four, what are called the four requisites, food and clothing and shelter and medicine, uh, only when they were offered, that they shouldn't sort of go out and say, well, I need some food, I'll take this. But that they should only accept it when, when it was offered. For lay people, it meant simply not to, not to steal. And again, um, what's very interesting for us, many of us may be very, very good in, in, the, in not breaking the, the gross Meaning of the precept, or not violating that. But what's very interesting are all these little gray areas, you know, that come up. You know, you know, I have a, I have a, um, um, let let's say that I have a, I work for a nonprofit. I'm not paid very much. Is it, is it violating the precept to take home a little more supplies from the office? How about surfing the internet on company time? You know, or uh, what does it mean to accept certain kinds of social privilege in a system in which some people are not are exploited? Is that theft? Is that a kind of is that a kind of stealing? These are not easy questions. These are, but these are really some of the questions that we're invited to to explore. And the the precept related to stealing, particularly. Reminds us to look at the qualities of greed and wanting in our mind, uh, to see what it is that leads us to get into the gray areas. You know, whether it would be that that question of what we do with nonprofits or what we do on our tax returns. These are these are some of the interesting areas that we might be looking at, um, and it's 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 very interesting to see how greed and wanting work in our mind. You know, a, a few years ago. Uh, my colleague uh, Diana Winston and I, we taught a class in Berkeley called Greed Management. And for the final exam, we went to the opening week of, um, it just so happened that Bed Bath and Beyond had opened in El Cerrito. And we, our final exam, we did walking meditation in a new Bed Bath and Beyond for, for half, half an hour and were instructed to watch our minds and, you know, and to say... Well, I didn't know that those products even existed, but I can see how they they really are important. <laughs> uh, and it it was it was fascinating to really see just how how much greed can actually be there, even when you know, yes, I really could use the um what the the stand on top of my television set that lets another little electronic device sit there in that six inches of space that otherwise wouldn't be used (laughs) Um, that's what I learned (laughs) Um, and it's also also to look at these larger social questions Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh interprets the precept in this way, do not accumulate wealth while millions are hungry live simply and share time, energy and material resources with those who are in need And again, the Buddha says, let one not not cause to steal, nor approve of others' stealing. So I think there is that social dimension there from the beginning. The third precept is about sexuality. And I think most, uh, for our purposes, it really goes back most basically to the quality of non-harming. Also, I think, to looking at at, uh, greed and horror, or how desire can overwhelm our sense of the precepts. Classically, the precept was well was understood for monks to mean celib- and nuns to mean celibacy, and for lay people in classical uh, Buddhist countries, it was primarily understood in terms of not committing adultery. I think for for our times, I think the notion of non-harming as the core of the guideline is the most basic. The the Training Principle says, for the sake of training, I undertake the precept to abstain from sexual misconduct. And it's really to, I think, to let the precept be a kind of guide as to how we deal with this very, very powerful energy. How is it possible to explore and express sexuality without hurting others, without hurting ourselves, without falling into all sorts of delusion or projection that might serve our own our own greed in some way and so for for many of us again we may follow the precept in the gross way of not really doing anything horrific but the precept also invites us to be really clear in when we get again in these these so-called gray areas you know, and really, it's really, again, to maybe remind us when we get in some territory where we feel a strong sexual energy and, we can, and, and we're not sure whether it's really the right thing to do, we can come back to the precept. That's how, in many ways, we can see the precepts as um, protecting. They can protect us from really damaging or hurting other people who are ourselves. And again, it's not to be... Uh, Puritan about it, but it's really to take us back to our intentions as much as we know them. And a lot of times we can think our intentions are good, and we may find out a week or two later <laughs> that they, they they are problematic. But it's, it's really to, to bring up the question of intention, and really it's, it's really to ask us to inquire into the gray areas. And from the social perspective, we could also ask questions about whether following the precept also means to question the abuse of sexuality in our society, the way that people's bodies are objectified in order to sell commodities, particularly women's bodies, you know, and their whole industries based on this. And for many people, that is a violation of the precept, and that to follow the precept means to work whether it's with education or with one with one's uh, children or in one's community to really work towards that and of course the, the dangers of the heritage of Victorianism are great so it's it's a lot of delicate balances to play here but it's really to to look carefully at what's happening in the society and to think that the precept isn't just about what i personally do with a few people but it also applies to the web of interrelationships and with in which I am involved the fourth precept is the precept of wise speech, and historically in Buddhist tradition, this along with the first precept were taken as the most important ones for many of us in our lives nowadays, uh, the precept about speech may be the important most important precept that we actually practice and that we actually pay attention to just because we are talking so much. And if we're not talking with others, we're talking to ourselves somewhat nonstop. And it's, it's really a precept that there's amazing ability to, to look into. I remember, and sometimes it just takes like something shaking us a bit. I remember when I was beginning practice, it was like over 20 years ago, I had a friend and we were, we were very close and we talked a lot and she told me, you know, I don't think you practice right speech very well. <laughs> and I think, I think that was actually right speech on her part. But she was, she, she was saying, you know, you're not so careful with a lot of things you say, especially to me. <laughs> <laughs> and it really, I, I, you know, it's one of those interactions that I remember now, you know, which means that something that I, I guess I could listen at the moment, and that there really was something to hear, and it really made me wake up. And really look at my speech, and it 's something that I think uh, many of us could really do with great with great profit to really be careful again the The teachings on wise speech which we 've explored here a few months ago, uh, have four main guidelines which which I like to express as being truthful, helpful um, open hearted or, or kind, and having clear intentions or have being speaking in, at the appropriate time and place. Something around those four dimensions of speech are the guidelines. And they're very powerful ones. You know, I have, I have them written next to my telephone. And, and I think I've told people, sometimes when I go to meetings, I, I write them on sheets of paper and hold them in front of me as I'm at a meeting. And very helpful. And again, the spirit of the precepts is to have us inquire. They're training precepts. They're not to say, oops, I blew wise speech or right speech again, I'm, you know, I'm just blowing the precepts. It's more to say, okay, I'm going in this direction, I'm going to find myself in the gray areas a lot. And that's the spirit of this practice of the precepts. And with speech, it's going to happen an awful lot. And so it's very helpful to review these uh, dimensions of wise speech and to really look into that. It's, it's actually a practice, as, I've, as I like to say, that when, if we can follow this in our daily lives, our practice can really accelerate because we do it so much and we get so much feedback pretty quickly from, from others especially. This is what Thich Han said about wise speech. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others, I vow to cultivate loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and relieve others of their suffering. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering, I vow to learn to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence, joy, and hope. And so it's, it's an invitation to look at our personal interactions and also to look at the, the whole society and the way that speech is used or misused. You know, the way that, that lying is, seems acceptable in certain parts of our society. And to look it might be to look at the media or look at education. The last of the five precepts is the precept about uh, being very careful with the energy of intoxicants. Um, this could mean anything which really shifts consciousness in a major way. Thich Han likes to talk about this precept as involving actually our taking in of media as well as food. Anything that we take in that really shifts consciousness, we have to be careful about. Um, and it's a, it's a precept that, again, there are different interpretations of some interpret the precepts as Thich Nhat Han does to mean abstinence from alcohol and other drugs, um, but I think for probably for most of us it has to do with really being aware that this is a is a is a is a territory where we can get in trouble. There's this very interesting story of a, a Thai Buddhist who was who was renowned for having great virtue, and someone um, someone challenged him and said, "Just break one of the precepts." And he said, I can't really do it, but the easiest one to do, I'll just, you know, I'll just break one precept. And he said, the, the only one I can do is to get drunk. But then, unfortunately, he got drunk and he broke the other four. <laughs> so it's sort of, a, sort of a cautionary tale there. Um, again, a very strong energy. For some people, working with the precepts might mean to stay totally away from that territory, you know, particularly if there's some physiological tendency, as some people have. To when there's even a little bit of use of alcohol or other drugs to just go in a certain place where one gets out of control. For many people, it may be to use it with moderation, and to to but to be also be careful of any any boundaries that one is getting close to, where uh, where some of the qualities of mind such as greed, hatred, and delusion can come into play. And so it's really a lot again an invitation to look at the gray areas to really. And see what's see what's wise for oneself. So the, these are these are the ethical precepts for you know what I also like to think about is that they the the guidelines for developing integrity. For developing integrity, harmlessness, and and basically a very simple warmth and protection that we offer to others. And if you'd like to practice them in the next week. That would be wonderful. And here are, here are just a few sort of reminders and sort of recapitulations of some of what, what's been said. It may be helpful if you want to do this to either take one or two precepts, possibly take them all. For many people, it works more easily if you just take one or two that you particularly want to focus on, particularly one that might come up a lot like speech. And so if you'd like to take on the precepts, you can say, I'll take on the precepts in the next week, and maybe I want to focus on one or two of them. It would mean, it might mean in the morning setting the intention to follow the precept. It might mean setting it right now in your mind. I'm going to follow the precept and finding ways to keep on reminding yourselves. Write the precepts on your hand. Put a piece of paper around your wrist. Um... Have a special object that you wear for the week that reminds you of the precepts i don 't know what that would be, but you know uh, find some way of reminding yourself each day and maybe even more often just you know it's a lot of what is powerful in practice is the f- factor of intention just to remind us, and then we sometimes get alerted so if you wanted to remind yourself in the morning, at noon, and at dinner for thirty seconds, if that wasn 't too. Obsessive. <laughs> uh, it would be a great way to do it. So that's the first thing. Set intention and try to bring it into, into your lives. You might even take these precepts and just read them in the morning. Look at them. And then try to be alert for the gray areas. And the invitation is when the gray areas appear, start inquiring, you know, what's going on? Okay, what's, what's going on, Donald? You, want, you were in a hurry to get here this morning, and you almost went through a red light. Was that, was that the second precept about being greedy? I don't know. It's getting in the gray area. So what's... I had awful traffic this morning. <laughs> it was bad. I won't, I won't go into that. I mean, I had to wait five minutes for a, a train in Berkeley... <laughs> anyway, so the presets when we're stressed a little bit, right? I want to be there on time, you know, and so forth. And um, so it's really to be be alert for the gray areas uh, and do some inquiries Say, what's there? What's present in me when I'm in this gray area? It's not so much to judge ourselves, but it's really to inquire. That's the spirit of the practice. To keep on inquiring over and over again, and in the course of that, we find out things. We find out things about the meaning of the precepts. We also find things about our intentions. Bring in the social dimension to some extent. What does that mean for you? It's a challenging dimension. What would it mean to work more with the precepts in a way that's not just entirely my own personal actions? What would it mean in the context of my family or community or even the larger society? And again, it might be good to start small there. And so hopefully, for many of you, there'll be a wonderful week of exploration and you'll be able to tell Sylvia all about it. (laughs) (laughs) So let me stop here and and invite any uh, questions or reflections or comments. Thank you.